Hey Kyle, Tyler Garwood here from Kodiak, Alaska, sitting on a bluff overlooking the ocean, listening to the birds chirp in the forest behind me, enjoying some sun. I'll be here as a Kodiak bear tour guide for the summer. Just wanted to say thanks for keeping me company on the road trip up here and keep up the awesome podcasts. Hell yeah, Tyler. I'm happy that I was able to keep you company on your road trip. Thanks for sending that in. If any of you want to send me a quick message, you can do that on your voice memos app. Just let me know who you are and where you're tuning in from, maybe something you're excited about. And you can email that to info at kyle.surf. Super simple. Don't overthink it. Just pretend like you're sending me a message after a couple beers and I will play it at the beginning of my show. Also, this is an ad-free podcast, and I wanted to thank Amy and Kahi and Reese for donating to the podcast on Patreon. It is people like you that allow me to prioritize this podcast, drive all over, and get amazing interviews like the one that you're about to hear. If you feel inspired to donate a couple bucks every month, you can head over to my website, kyle.surf, and click the Patreon link. I will also include the link in the bio below this episode to make it super duper easy for you. Um, and thank you again so much to everyone who donates. It, uh, it really does make the difference. Even just a few bucks a month, the equivalent of buying me a cup of coffee um, allows me to keep this show rolling. All right. This episode is with Chris Cote. Chris is a professional action sports personality. He got his start as a competitive, competitive surfer and skateboarder before he was the editor of Trans World Surf magazine. Today, Chris is a commentator for the World Surf League, host of the Vans Park series, editor of Encinitas magazine, and host of the Monday Mass podcast. So I recommend that you go over there and check this out. Be sure to get in touch with Chris if you enjoy this episode. He is highly reachable, and my guests always love hearing from you. And without further ado, please welcome to the show, Chris Cote. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I did an interview with Damien Hobgood the other day, and it was the day after I got back from a music festival, and I had completely lost my voice. Oh, it's terrifying, is it? I had to put the microphone, like, I was touching the microphone. I was like, oh, tell me about your post, CT, the career life. That happened to me. I, was, uh, I went to L.A. to hang out with some friends who flew in from New York. And we had all this really fun stuff planned. Went out and, you know, I don't drink or anything, but we were out at a bar and sitting at this table with all these really interesting, cool people. And throughout the afternoon into the evening, my voice was just, I was losing it. By the night, it was totally gone. And it was so frustrating because obviously I'm a person that likes to talk like yourself. And I'm sitting at this table with all these cool people and I'm, they're talking about things that I'm really interested in. I want to talk about and I can't talk. <laughs> yeah. And so I start going, 
oh, that was cool, you know? And everyone's looking at me like, dude, what are you even doing here? Like, <laughs> go home. And uh, it's, it was really frustrating and terrifying because we're people that basically our voices are our livelihoods in yeah. a way. And when something like that happens, it gets really scary because you go, okay, well, now what do I do? I've never considered it either as um, a part of myself that I could lose. But like, right? yeah, like being a, you know, a surfer, you think like, man, I, I want to do some, yeah, I want to do something. some yoga so I don't hurt my shoulder, or my knee. And, you know, I'm going to get older and my body's not always going to be like this. I'm not going to be able to do all the fun shit that I enjoy doing. So I better enjoy it now. But my voice is this thing that I've always just assumed I would have with me. And I was right. out at this festival. You'd fucking dig it, man. It's called the Bombay Beach Biennale. Wow. And it's near the salt. It's on the Salton Sea. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. yeah. So Bombay Beach was a tourist destination in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. In the 1950s, more people were going to Bombay Beach than Yosemite. Right. Um, and then this algal bloom occurred and made the whole area in the Salton Sea smell Mad like Max rotten type, eggs. Yeah. The tourists fled. Now it's this old derelict town. You can get a piece of property there for something like two thousand dollars. Yeah. And there are people who live there full time, and you're like, who are you? Right. It's a whole new world out yeah. there. Yeah. Walter White came out of this one RV. And, you know, there was a whole lot of meth out there. This anyway. is like a mini Burning Man-ish type of so festival. So uh, this filmmaker bought up a bunch of plots of land out there and he had a lot of connections with artists and musicians and creatives and the idea is that they throw this Burning Man-esque festival one weekend a year and then they leave the art out there to create a kind of lasting value for the community because it's near Slab City and right. a lot of people go through that part of California to check out this surreal wasteland right um but the idea is that if enough art is left out there people will want to start going into bombay beach and it can start to bring some tourist do tourism dollars in there so i went um with my friend chris ryan because uh, he was speaking there and I has, had been suffering from a sore throat a few days yeah. prior. Just a little thing, right? Just a little and thing. And grows. Yeah, it's just that little nagging thing in there. There are a couple... <clears throat> and then through the night, Glitch Mob starts playing. There's bonfires. I want to tell a big story. And I just slowly feel my voice recede away from me. And then the next day, I couldn't talk. Yeah. And I hadn't had that happen to me in years. And I was thinking like, okay, this is a, this is a serious handicap. Don't know what you got until it's gone type of thing. Very much so. You know, it happened to me. Um, my band cut you up a long time ago. We went on a tour of Texas and this was kind of our second tour to follow up to capitalize on the destruction that we did on the pop disaster tour. And we went to Texas and we were still just too fired up so partying our asses off after the first show we wound up at a house party and i i smoked something out of tinfoil not exactly sure what it was whether it was crack or meth i don't know what it was right we were just partying and i smoked something smoking and tinfoil are never not good, good in the same not sentence not good at all and the next day no voice we had three shows left and so that, that was the the kind of the the crux of the band I guess you will we had these opportunities 
you know, then you smoke something out of tinfoil and the rest is history. What did you, know? you do? Well, I could not sing, obviously. I could not even speak. And so I just kind of played my parts on bass and kind of stepped up to the microphone every once in a while and opened my mouth, but nothing came out. Um, so I kind of ruined that tour for the band. Um, I think it came back after a couple days and not that I was ever a good singer per se, but at least I could say something. So that was kind of scary, you know, and, and I, I know that, that feeling of kind of despair and desperation because all, there's nothing you can do, sleep, drink water and wait. I mean, there's nothing you can do to get your voice back. And I remember after that talking to as many people as I could in bands and whoever, like, how do I, you know, exercise this muscle and through commentary. I mean, I've talked to Sal Mascala, Todd Richards, all these guys that, you know, I'm, I'm always curious as to how people do it, how people can, you know, exercise their voice and keep it healthy and, you know, from, from everybody who I've talked to, it, it comes down to sleep and water, which it's not always easy to do. And posture as well. I um, have felt my voice start to go after a few talks that I've given. Right. And um, posture and warming up as well. There's a good YouTube video that I will watch periodically that gives you this 10-minute voice warm-up. And the guy recommends you, you stand with good posture. And rather than going, oh, you go, so you're, so you're kind of stretching your range right. so it doesn't crack at that yeah. um, that ending point. Um, along the lines of losing your voice, last year at the Bombay Beach Biennale, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros played. However, it was the same week as Coachella, so they had a non-compete clause in their contract. Yes, yeah, so they couldn't say they so were they playing. Cu- they couldn't say they were playing. So Edward Sharp w- comes out on the stage and he would be fine if he sang. So he, he comes out on stage and he's in all white in powder and backstage he had chugged ketchup and he sticks his finger down his throat. And instead of singing, he vomits ketchup out. That's performance art. <laughs> Some people call I that like art. It. I like it. Um, but yeah, it's, have you worked on your voice on your presence as you, as your commentating career um, evolved? Um, I mean, I think... Like, what were the big things that you felt like you had to um, work on? I feel like it was just confidence, you know, and just being mindful of the words that you use and the words that you don't use. Um, I... And now I'm going to be listening for him, but, uh, you know, saying the word like, saying the word um, pausing at weird moments in your thought... As you, uh, you know, talk about a wave or talk about a run and skating, you know, and I think just kind of trusting your own voice and it really hasn't been until recently, you know, I've done videos a ton in the past. I've done a lot of voiceovers. Yeah. Introductions to events, you know, cold opens they're called. And I I guess in the past just couple of years, I've really gained the confidence of, oh, well, I do have a voice that people want and to hear, you know, because for so long you hear people go, wow, look at this guy with this, the nasally tone, the spicoli, you know, whatever it was, you hear all the haters so often. And not that I don't let haters get at me. I've had them for years and I appreciate them. But everyone, you know, sometimes you just have to reaffirm and re-believe in yourself, if that makes sense. And 
you know, when, when enough people ask you to do a voiceover, to do a, an open for a show, you kind of go, oh, well, maybe I am good at this. And then in listening back, you know, this winter I did a, a job for NBC for the Dew Tour. It was a snow and ski team event. And I remember watching it on NBC, listening to it and thinking, oh, I'm pretty good at this. I like this. You know, and people hitting me up saying, wow, your voice sounds great. And that was kind of in, in the throes of self-doubt about my voice. So for kind of random people to come at me and say, oh, your voice sounds great on this show, you know, you kind of develop that self-belief again. And, you know, I think that's helped me a lot in the past couple years just going, oh, well, I do have a good voice. Yeah, I and think I should use this voice more. I, I think we're also in an exciting time where you don't need to be a commentator and have that same low voice, the broadcaster voice. Back to you, Chris. People are looking for more authenticity. They're looking for more range and... Realness. You know your shit. So even if your voice isn't Sal Masekela's, who has a beautiful voice. Edward James almost. You have exciting and relevant things to say about action sports because you've done your homework. And I'm excited about him. I mean, that, that's the whole thing is I think you can hear the excitement level that I have when I'm talking about, I mean, even in shitty waves or even if it's, a, you know, this event is drawing on and on, you know, I'm, I'm a fan and an active participant in, in all these things, surfing, skating, snowboarding. And, you know, I have a, a, a truly, you know, broad interest in some of the other events, you know, whether it's flat track motocross, which I did this summer, um, whether it's, you know, an Ironman, which I would love to talk about and commentate on any, any sports that I could get involved with or any kind of lifestyle play that I'm interested in, I would love to be a part of. And I think I've kind of positioned myself as a show host, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm the bridge between the core and the general audience to the actual sport. So I think I can kind of be that link for people that know everything there is to know about skateboarding, for example. And then people that just stumble upon it and they say, okay, Vans Park Series, what is this? I want to watch this. This is skateboarding. My nephew skateboards or my neighbor skateboards. So I feel like I have the ability to kind of link those two worlds. And most every event that I would do is I would be partnered up with an expert, right? A, a former professional, current professional. If it's skating, it would be Neil Hendricks and Chris Pastris. So I'm the guy that's asking them the questions that the viewer at home would be asking. And it's same with snowboarding, skiing, whatever. You know, I, I put myself on the couch at home watching this event, wondering, well, is a 1080 hard? Or what does that mean that he's going switch? I know a lot of viewers that know their stuff are watching and go, okay, I know what switch is. Well, not everybody knows. So it's basically being able to keep the core audience engaged and entertained, but also inform, enlighten, and, you know, educate new viewers or people that are just maybe interested in oh, what, you know, like I want to surf. I want to know what surfing the North shore is like. I want to know how dangerous pipeline is. You know, and I, and I feel like all these broadcasts and all these, you know, webcasts, podcasts, whatever about these sports are to grow and, you know, help people get interested in these sports. 
And, you know, if you aspire to be a surfer one day, not that you're going to go surf pipeline, but maybe that, you know, gets you excited to take a surf lesson or buy a new surfboard and just try to get better. And being a role, filling the role as conduit is immensely important. I was down in Chile this last year and I was at a party and they were serving this really nice red wine. And I don't know shit about wine. I was drinking it and it tasted good. And then the Psalm <clears throat> came up to me and he said, Oh, do you taste the earthy tones and the hint of apple in this wine? And I tested him. Yeah, I kind of do. I think I do. I kind of do. He just allowed me to feel that experience more fully. Right. And by you explaining what's happening, it allows the viewer to feel that experience more fully and gain more appreciation for what's actually happening. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not trying to sit here and brag and say that like I'm the best or I know everything about all these sports, but I think the key element there is that I'm excited about learning. I'm excited about sharing whatever knowledge I have, and I'm excited about trying to get the best knowledge out of the expert sitting next to me, um, really. And I guess entertaining is the, is the other key factor there. It's like, if you're going to sit and watch snowboarding or surfing for 22 minutes or for an hour or for six hours, sometimes on, you know, some surf broadcast, like the least we can do is entertain you and, you know, enlighten you throughout the, throughout the broadcast and, you know, try not to repeat ourselves and try to, uh, keep, keep you listening, keep you uh, engaged in whatever event that it is. You told me earlier that you love the haters. Yeah. Um, tell me about that because you seem like someone who um, could have easily gone the route of uh, bitter being, a, no, <laughs> just like local pro. Yeah. And then what happens to most local pros is there's... They get better. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's... Yeah, they get better. Bitter. A lot of people do. Um, and, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Was it always... Did you always have that relationship to haters growing up as you were breaking out of a mold? I'd like to yeah. know about that. I mean, I think I've just always been someone that deals with criticism or, you know, deals with... I'll say hatred. Hate, haters is kind of a, a, a loose term, you know, deals with jealousy or whatever. Um, I just never take took myself too seriously to the point of, you know, if somebody's going to tell me, oh, you're not good at surfing, I'm not going to cry about it. I'll just say, oh, thank you. I'm better than you or, you know, whatever. I just never, never took that stuff super serious. And I remember when I realized that I wasn't going to be a top tier pro, the probably the first time I ever went to Hawaii and tried to pile out a pipeline when it was two foot and got super smoked, I go, okay, maybe this is not going to be a career path for me. Um, I kind of just, did you have that conversation with someone or was it an internal thing no, that you recognized ever, yeah. immediately? Nobody ever told me I, I couldn't be a pro surfer, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's just like, nobody ever told me I couldn't sing. Nobody ever told me I couldn't, be in a band, you know, but nobody, nobody ever told me I could either. So it, it's pretty much all just, you know, the, the confidence or the moxie, if you will, to just keep trying and keep doing these things. And I never really dealt with the, I guess, haters until Transworld Surf. And that was really where I put myself out there mostly because when I grew up, when I was growing up and being a 
B level pro surfer, you know, there wasn't internet forums and there, you know, nobody's going to really come up and talk shit to your face. Like, where'd you grow up? Here. I grew up in Encinitas and, you know, I, I think through the, I was kind of a late bloomer. Like I didn't really get my surf legs under me until after high school. And then I kind of got sponsored and, you know, was big in Japan for about a year, which was cool. Um, you know, and kind of made my way up through the ranks. This was kind of post PSAA pre QS, you know, us open of surfing was a big event for me. Uh, ECSC, things like that. Small wave surf contests. Um, and then kind of through the self realization of knowing that I was scared of big waves and that I wasn't going to, you know, beat Kelly Slater anytime soon. I kind of parlayed my positive attitude and charm and wit into uh, working in the surf industry, getting jobs at, shoot, I worked for everyone, Billabong, Reef, Arnett, Spy, uh, Hurley. As- I worked for everyone like Tent Boy, um, Team Manager. I would go to NSSAs and hang out with Groms, whatever. I'd do whatever. And I guess it would all come kind of be under the marketing umbrella. And so through all that, just got a lot of experience through the surf industry and made friends with as many people as possible. Um, tried not to burn any bridges. Maybe did a, a couple along the way, but nothing serious. So through all that, just meeting a bunch of people, always being cool with everybody, um, you know, never, uh, never trying too hard in any direction, just kind of trying to be the best version of myself and trying to be kind of real with people, but also, you know, consider myself a very nice person and, you know, I can get along with whoever. So I think that helped me throughout my early career of just, you know, people going, Oh yeah, that guy's, that guy's cool. Like hire him to do this. Or, you know, I don't know. I was just, uh, and pretty good at doing all those jobs. So through all that, 1999 came around and that's when I was in a big stoner phase and I was working, I was actually working at Hanson's right next door to where we're doing this interview. Um, and that point in my life, I was just totally fine with just getting stoned, riding my bike to work at the surf shop, horrible surf shop employee. I mean, never folded a shirt, very nice to everybody, but just like lazy as, um, and then, uh, and 1999 rolls around then I get the call from Steve Zeldin to uh, help start Transworld Surf Magazine so it was myself my friend uh, Blair Marlin and we were the first two writers I guess we were in the focus group to start the magazine and uh, yeah so from there I, I actually really got into what I was doing didn't have a you know I had a history in writing articles for magazines just on the trips that was another part about being you know the the kind of uh, the, the surfer with maybe not as much talent as the other guys on the trips that I would be on or to get myself invited on the trips. Like, yo, I'll write the article for free. Let me go on the trip. You know, so I get a postage stamp photo, but I would, I would have written the article. So it kind of worked out for me there. And then that's kind of the basis of how I got the job at Transworld. Right. I'm sure also an understanding of how it all works. Yeah. And what I have to offer. What do you have to offer? And it, like... Gaining the realization that if you're a pro surfer, you are a commodity. Right. And the second you're not offering value to that company, 
you're not going to be sponsored anymore. Yeah. I mean, and I can do airs. I can get a photo doing an air and maybe sell some t-shirts on a local level for a company for sure. Right. But and to increase your value, you can say, hey, I, I can also write. Yes. Um, so then you Transworld Surf, um, started growing rapidly and you, were you editor in chief, uh, from the get go? No, I started off as contributing writer or something like that. Um, then I was worked up to editor and then editor in chief for the past, for the last four or five years of it or for that, the past two years of it. So through Transworld, I started getting a, you know, some commentary gigs and then doing some work with fuel TV. So that's really where I kind of asserted myself. Like I'll do, I've never just had one job. So I kind of would go, okay, I'm going to use this platform. I started Cote's cube, the video series. I started doing basically anything I could to not only grow my own brand, but also to grow Transworld surf. And so working with fuel TV, commentating the U S open and then, getting myself involved with commentating the triple crown, stuff like that, basically kind of using what I was doing at Transworld to branch out and get other gigs. And the other gigs started getting more and more prevalent. So I made myself editor at large or something, global editor, which is what most uh, editor in chiefs do from magazines. I mean, you kind of see that with every surf magazine, the editor in chief always seems to go the route of global editor at some point just to kind of get out of the office, I guess. And so all the other hustles kind of got to a point where it wasn't really fair to the staff at the time where I would just always be gone. And so I made myself editor at large and continued on doing the magazine. And it was, you know, it was really, it was a successful magazine and super fun times. And the crew there was, you know, those are some of my best friends still to this day. And so in 2013, the global or the parent company for surfer magazine and surfing magazine bought Transworld as a whole and we pretty much knew that you know there wasn't room for three magazines and unfortunately we were the first to go you know and i was chalk it up to the you know if you can't beat them buy them which that's what we felt at the time because we were all we all we all had market share and we were all like fighting for ad dollars and all that and you know i felt like we were in a unique position as the youth oriented magazine and kind of the more edgy of the three but surfer and surfing had the history and so you know then we went away and I kind of stuck around working at grind tv for a while but still focusing mainly on the other hustles the broadcasting the commentary you know a lot of freelance writing and stuff like that what'd you do to get better at writing um besides just doing it more yeah um I I feel like just were there any tools or mentors or anything that really stuck with you? I think just, you know, tapping into my own voice and trying to write as close to how I think has really helped me in not trying to overthink it. You know, I've been trying to write a novel for 10 years and I just continuously keep writing outside of my own body, which is it's not working. Hmm. You know, what do you mean by that? Just because, uh, you know, you, you start to... So for, let's say, for example, a normal article, if I'm writing something about, you know, I do Encinitas magazine now, so it's all about Encinitas, right? If I'm writing about a local restaurant or a historical piece about one of the first settlers in Encinitas, I try to write very just matter-of-factly conversational, hey, this guy moved here, how cool is it, what what Encinitas was like back then, 
um, you know, just kind of writing as if I would be talking to somebody and keeping it very simple. And it would be the same for my articles in Transworld Surf or Surfer Magazine or whatever. It's like, I'm on this trip. This crazy thing happened. I can't believe how good so-and-so surfs. This is what he looks like on a wave. You know, just very kind of simple, hopefully effective writing, yeah. right? In the process of trying to write this novel and trying to, you know, I read a lot of, I read a lot of books, fiction, nonfiction, and, you know, you you, when I'm trying to write my own, you heavily doubt yourself because you read something that's so good and you're going, why well, I'm never gonna do this, you yeah. know, and so read some Joan Didion or Tom, yeah, Wolf, you, you, shit. yeah, you, you you read one page of you know, Don Winslow is a, a recent example of somebody who I just I love how he writes. And he writes these just wonderful, starting with surf noir kind of crime thrillers, now all the way into police corruption and these drug lord sagas. And you read one page of this and you go, well, I'm never going to be that good. Yeah. You know, it kind of sucks because you can be inspired watching John John Florence surf a wave, right? But you can't let that make you quit surfing. You can't see John John a wave and go, well, that's, I'm never going to do that. So I quit. But that's kind of how sometimes I feel with writing. It's, you know, and it's you just got to keep trying, and it's it's hard. Writing a novel is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. Yeah, fail your way to success. I think that um, along the lines of recognizing your shortcomings and your strengths, it's important to have those honest conversations with yourself, where you look yourself in the mirror and you say, "Well, I'm not going to be a model." Yeah, I've never well, said that. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> I am still going to be a model. Yes, the distinguished yes, GQ yeah. Chris Cote. Um, but I think that, we, like, just because you aren't good at one thing doesn't mean that you can't uh, leverage another aspect of right. your personality or another uh, skill to um, do basically the same thing. You know, I think that there, like, we can um, really, like, we can really hinder ourselves if we get too specific on this is what I'm right. going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. Rather than looking at qualities with which you want to live your life, um, you know, things that are important to you, and is and asking yourself, is there another way that I might be able to get there? Yeah, I've always considered myself a jack of all trades, a master of none. And every, you know, I've I've had so many times where I've just thought. God, I wish I was just good at one, really good at one thing. I don't care about all this other stuff. But then I, I kind of kick myself in the ass and go, no, that's actually the opposite of what you want. Because I love doing everything. I love being a mediocre guitar player and an okay drummer and, uh, you know, a, a pretty good surfer and a questionable skateboard. I love being able to do all these things. And the more I think about it, the more I feel super fortunate to still be able to do all of these things and have these artistic outlets. And, you know, I may not be the world's best at something, but anyone that I've ever known that's the world's best at a single thing is usually a freak. And, you know, I'm kind of a freak in many different ways. So I'm a deluded type of freak. And I, you know, <laughs> the I, deluded I, freak. Yeah. So it's album a, coming yeah, in 2019 like a freak laid on a, on a, a level. So little, little bits of freakiness here yeah, and there. Like, and I don't, I don't mind being pretty good at a lot of things. You know, I think, uh, it's, I'm, I'm fortunate. Yes. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag, hashtag blessed. a freak Take laying, that part out. laying down on Saturn. Yes. The, the 
lion skin. A bed of many. Yes. Stroking your nipples. Yes. Not trying too hard at any one thing. Let's go down this road. Let's go down this road. Let's keep going. Keep going. (laughs) Um, So, uh, good for you, man. I think that it's so, like, do you feel like in Encinitas there's kind of a tall poppy syndrome? Um, I mean, I think there is everywhere. Small towns. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm in the business of raising people up more than standing above people. You know, and I've always uh, done my best to help anyone that I can, anyone that's come to me for help, whether it's help quitting drinking or help, you know, writing. And, you know, again, I've never claimed to be the best or even highly tuned at anything, but I can help in however, however I can, you know, I always accept calls from people like, how did you quit drinking? Or, um, I'm looking for, uh, the best surfboard to start on whatever it is. I mean, I've always tried my best to be an open book and to help people and, you know, do whatever I can to, you know, it it sounds ridiculous to, to make people happy. Um, to a fault, it's like you know I put myself out there enough to where I'm I'm highly reachable. I'm I'm easy to get at when it comes to advice or you know constructive criticism or anything like that. So I, I feel like you know that that syndrome of I'm the coolest in town or you know I'm the best at this. You know I feel like around here, you know everybody is so good at everything. You know you you'll go Seaside Reef and there's fifty surfers that just shred you know you go to the local skate park here and there's 10 year olds that are just ripping and so there's no being the best around here especially just because i mean everyone's out there and everyone's you look around i mean everyone's successful around here everyone you know everyone's doing it and so i feel like that that syndrome i wouldn't say exists really that much around here there's no there's not a lot of chest beating i mean you, you know, you were just hanging out with Rob Machado down the street. I mean, right there, we'll tell you, the dude lives in a van by the river. So uh, that tells you the kind of attitude of Rob Machado, who could be living in a gold-plated van down by the river, lives in a crusty van down by the river. And he is humble and cool and, you know, yeah. surfs the same spot every day. And I snipped yeah. a piece of his dreadlock you, off. Okay, so you got a lucky dread. Yeah, I'm keeping it in my pocket Perfect. for good luck. I'm gonna, I noticed something different about you. I'm going to burn it as sage later tonight. Yeah. <sighs> Breathe it in. Smoke it, actually. Yeah. If you smoke one of Rob's dreads, you might surf like it. <laughs> Some tinfoil. Yes. Um, when did you quit drinking? Uh, almost four. It'll be four years in May. Was it a cold turkey? It was a cold... Well, it, it's funny. Kind it of was plan, a, or? It was uh, after one particularly savage bender. Um, it was a friend's bachelor party, and it was just like around the world and back type of thing. You know, the whole look in the mirror. Oh my God, what what am I become? <laughs> who who is this person? You disgust You're me. You're a monster. <laughs> the next day, you know, passing out. The kids are asking why his dad's sick. Um, then saying, "All right, I'm not drinking again for a long time." Three days later, I'm at happy hour, loaded again. Then I go, okay, uh, now, now this is something. So it was one of those things where, you know, I've had wives or wife, wife, 
parents, friends, and everybody like, dude, you need to chill. You need to slow down. You need to stop. I'm fine. I love drinking. I'm, I'm good. I'm an expert at it. I know what I'm doing. And then, um, you know, I, I don't think you can really, until you firmly believe that you have the problem and that you need to stop, it's really hard to stop. And so it, it was kind of the wake up and realization of you're fucking up and you are in a vicious cycle that you cannot get out of, you know, the basic, and it wasn't just that one bender, it was years and years of benders. And then more of this kind of numbing cycle of wake, you know, so let's say two beers at lunch and then tired in the afternoons, taking Adderall, then you're on Adderall and then you can't, you know, then you get home you're like, well, I need two to three glasses of wine if I'm going to cut the Adderall. So then you have that. And then the next morning you're kind of hung over take the Adderall, drink a ton of coffee, then you're jittery, then you need beers at lunch. And so it's just that cycle of like, whoa, how did I get here? You know, then it's like you're taking pills to sleep. And again, it's just kind of compounding everything. So you're, it's like a bad sandwich. You know, you start with the bread and then it's the meat and then every, and then next thing you know, you're on this pile of sandwich and you need that thing every day or it's off, right? Everything's off. And so I kind of just got, numbed to it. And I remember when I kind of quit smoking weed the first time, it just got to a point where you just smoke so much weed and it never did anything. You're like, really? I just smoked four bong loads and I don't feel anything. So obviously this doesn't work anymore. So you quit and then you realize however many months or years later you try it again. You're like, whoa, okay. Yeah, I get it. That stuff's really powerful. How did I smoke that much and not feel anything? It was the same with booze for me. Just you know, you just kind of drink, and then it wasn't fun anymore. You weren't laughing anymore, and you know the idea of being the thirty-nine, forty-year-old drunkest dude at the party is no longer fun or funny. It's just sad, and you know I've seen that person. I've been that person, and you know when you're that super annoying. I was never an angry drunk, or you know fighter or any of that kind of stuff, but probably a very annoying drunk, like most drunks are, uh, you know, and you just kind of become a joke. And so I wanted to try to nip it in the bud before I was a joke for too long. And I mean, my life, I, I, I never really, I wouldn't say I hit any kind of rock bottom. Like I, I, you know, my work never really suffered, although I probably would have been, I probably would be more advanced, uh, professionally if I wouldn't have wasted 10 or so years I think when you know between 20 and 30 you can get as screwed up as you want as long as you can pull it back in um you know but had I quit sooner um you know I probably would have I don't want to say I have regrets but it would have been nice to quit a little bit sooner to see where I would have been now because there's a lot of catch-up to do you, know? you feel like you're more charismatic when you're drunk too I feel like it's uh, it's just kind of dealing with a level of social anxiety, which th- this is probably the reason most people drink socially. Um, y- you know, you're more outgoing and you just kind of the, 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 the feeling of that freedom of just being wasted is, was great. Um, you know, then it, it comes to a point in the wasted portion of the night where everything's great and you have funny stories and you're being, you know, hilarious and you're really engaged with whatever's happening around you. But then a kind of a 
switch goes on whether you black out and you start acting stupid making stupid decisions you know smoking cigs doing drugs whatever it is that you do once you get drunk hooking up with random chicks or dudes or whatever you know it always uh my mom always said nothing good happens after midnight i love that which is very true and so i mean that's the whole thing it's i just never had once i got to the point of being buzzed enough to where i could talk myself in and or out of anything like oh i got a big meeting tomorrow morning better stop drinking i'm like ah i don't that meeting's not that important or oh i'm here with a pile of drugs in front of me i probably shouldn't do this you know but you do it and i, I feel like just making really bad decisions um at least now being sober you can kind of analyze those decisions a little better and more often than not you'll go wow i can't believe i said yes to this because that's stupid or you know that is not a good thing to do for me yeah i have friends who <coughs> alcohol's the elephant in the room man everyone drinks and i did sober january which was the first month that i drank no alcohol for the whole month right um i think i drank like i had a glass of wine during a podcast once but the amount of opportunities that i had to drink really showed oh it's crazy every single day hey sushi would you like some sake hey would you yes hey hey, kote you want to meet up let's grab a beer um and i have friends now who are sober um one who has become sober because they were a bad alcoholic yeah. They're getting fights. And yeah. it was a situation where they started seeing their life fall apart all around them. And it was this, you know, really look yourself in the mirror kind of moment. Yeah. I have another friend who's sober now and they were really fun when they were drunk. Yeah. Like they were a great drunk. So there is that side of them that is gone now. Yeah. And I, I, like what you were talking about, like you're a charismatic guy. You're fun to be around when you're drunk. So there is that kind of conflict to deal with. Like, oh, yeah. I, like I do podcasts sometimes drunk and I'm funnier when I'm drunk. It happens. Well, I have a lot. I have, I definitely have a lot of friends and acquaintances that when I told them that I quit drinking or when they found out or whatever, they're like, what? Why? Right. You know, cause they, they never thought that I had a problem with it. We like that, Chris. Yeah, Yeah. what? No, man. Come on. Like, you can still drink, though, right? (laughs) No. And, you know, it's... uh, I think you kind of realize, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but you realize who your friends are, you know, who your true friends are. And, you know, and I I totally have empathy for people that don't understand or get kind of bummed out because that is a really strong bond that people have together. And it's really... With, you know, with a lot of my friends, it's kind of not all we had in a way, because when you think about it, that's 90% of what you can do when there's nothing to do. You know, how many times if you're with a friend or you're, you, you connect with an old friend or dating or whatever, it's like, what do you do? Well, you go get a drink. You go to happy hour and you get a drink. I guess you can say, let's go meet for coffee, which sounds kind of sterile and a little bit boring. Let's go get a drink. Sounds like the world is your oyster and anything can happen. And I feel like I have proven to all my friends and to whoever that 
I'm still the guy that goes out that has fun. I can still be funny. I can still dance. I can still play shows. I can still do whatever. I just don't drink now while I do it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I mean, I used to go to concerts and do all this stuff and blackout and wake up the next day and be like, well, that was a great show. I think I lost my shoes, which that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. But now it's, you know, when you're out and you're kind of taking these things in, I feel like I can really soak it in, you know, I can really experience it. And then I have a constant out, you know, when you think about going out and drinking with your friends or going to a show and drinking and doing all that, there's a lot of logistics involved that become a pain in the ass. This is why people get DUIs. This is why people get in troubles because, you know, sober, I go, okay, this band, let's say, okay, the psychedelic furs is playing at the belly up. It's 10 minutes from my house, right? I show, I show up right before they start. I watch the set. I get in my car. I drive home. I'm in bed at 1030. I'm cruising. I remembered every song, you know, I have the perfect image in my head of this band and what they sound like. I'm inspired by it. Whereas before it's like, okay, start drinking, call the dealer, um, get in the, you know, get in the car cab, get to the show. You're wasted at the show. You know, Oh my God, the show's over. Now what do we do? We're going to the, someone's house afterwards. It's three in the morning. Oh shit. Gotta get home. You know? And then it becomes a four day deal. Yeah. Just to see a band. And I don't, I'm not knocking it because I did it for so long and I, I totally watch people at shows that are out of their mind and I go, Oh, that I can see how that is fun. Cause I've been there and it is fun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I like this way better for me personally and I'm never, I'm not a judgy dude at all. And trust me, I've been judged by the best of them and it does not work. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I never get judgy or weird. I mean, if you're out of control and you're impeding on my good time, I'll call you out on it for sure. But, you know, for the most part, I'm there to have fun with you and it doesn't matter. Yeah. I've, I've annoyed people enough to where you can't really annoy me when you're drunk. You can yeah, try. Yeah. It is strange though how normalized uh, alcohol and Coke are. Yeah. I'm like, as I've gotten in, you know, later into my 20s, like, that's just what a lot of people do you go out and it's a recreational someone's fun thing, someone's right? got a packy and then everyone leaves for 10 minutes and that was one thing i never got into i was really happy i've, I've for you. never done coke and it was because i could see myself liking it yeah well it's very likable yeah and, and i could see myself like, oh yeah like yeah. this is gonna be charismatic kyle and i'm gonna and i was just like you know what that's not for me. And I think largely it was due to the fact that uh, my big brother, Toby, never did coke. And yeah. he had that influence on me. And I was like, okay, that's one that I don't need to to try. But it, it was um, like one insight I got from doing Sober January was how often I would crack a beer when I was feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. And when I didn't have that as an outlet, I was forced to develop the toolkit to deal with discomfort and move through that experience exactly. rather than uh, numbing it, which kind of just kicks the can a little further down the road. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, again, that's the reason why I'm sure a lot of people drink is just dealing with good, bad, you know, even slight anxiety. Cause that's the first thing I would do, you know, whether it was something big 
losing a gig or, you know, the death in the family, whatever. The first thing it's like, let's get loaded. Stub your toe. I stubbed my toe. I need a beer. And then it got to the point of... It's Kwanzaa. Let's celebrate. Telling, you know, telling myself, well, I'm at my best after two... I remember thinking two Coors Lights and then I'm at my best. Whether it's skating a mini ramp, hosting a webcast, uh, whatever. I go, that's my best. And then I kind of thought about that through like, oh, really? Okay, so you need that crutch to be your best self. And it really was... You know, and it was a, a constant thing of, oh, I, I just, I feel kind of stiff, right? I got to just loosen up, you know, a couple beers, now I'm good. But then inevitably a couple beers, you know, I'm at my best after two beers and then after three, it goes very quickly downhill from there. Um, and that was kind of the, uh, the crutch that I had of the, the two beer minimum because I always would thought, oh man, I surf so much better after two beers. I just come in, have two beers. I'll go out, I'll be loose. I'll be surfing good. It, it, there's really, I mean, it's a mental thing. Yeah. Was if it you e- can somehow meditate yourself into that two beer state, you'll be great. Was it easy for you to quit? Um, or, and did you do a 12 step program or how did you? I went to a couple meetings. I mean, my dad got sober six years ago. And for, that was a big inspiration to me just because, I mean, I, I had a pretty, surfacey relationship with my dad forever just because he was drinking you know the the whole deal for my whole life and then when he got sober I saw a, this kind of wall for drop for him and we really developed a deeper relationship pretty immediately when he got sober and so I thought well geez I don't need to wait till I'm 60 something to have that relationship with my kids so you know a, a lot of that was just trying to be present for them and also seeing, you know, a, a lot of the, the things that I do in my life are kind of a dare to myself. And this was a huge one for me is, well, I bet, you know, kind of like you have the devil and angel on your shoulders. And I just look at the devil. I'm like, I bet you, you can't get me. I bet I can not drink for two weeks. And so that was kind of the initial bet, right. With myself, you, you, I bet you after two weeks, you're going to want to drink so bad. Two weeks goes by. Okay. That wasn't that bad. You know, I felt like shit detoxing after 20 plus years of heavy drinking and drugs is really gnarly. And so two weeks. All right. That wasn't too bad. Let me see if I can go a month, month, three months. I'm going, I can do this, you know, soda water, LaCroix, all this stuff. And I ate a ton of sugar you know, kind of replacing booze with candy and stuff, which most people do, I, I assume. And then, you know, it got to about four or five months. I'm going, okay, this is a thing now. Like, I can do this. I started noticing myself feel a little better. I started noticing kind of opportunities arising. And then I really started to notice the perception that other people had of me. I remember talking to this uh, producer and it was a friend was trying to get me hired for this gig. And he told me that when he told the producer, oh, yeah, you should get Chris to do it. The producer was like, oh, yeah, we like him, but he's he's kind of a wild card. Like, you never know what you're going to get with him. And I didn't know that people thought of me like that because this is a person that I'd partied with before heavily. And so it's kind of one thing to 
be known as the fun party guy, but it's also another thing to be known as dependable and somebody who will work hard at whatever they're hired for. And so when I kind of heard, and it was obvious, I mean, it was obvious to me that I've done gigs drunk and I've screwed up a ton of times in that capacity. So, but to kind of hear it right straight up, somebody say, he's kind of a loser. We like him, but we're not sure if we want to hire him because he's kind of sketchy. When I heard that, I go, oh, well, I got to change that perception right now. And so, you know, it kind of seeded out there like I'm not drinking anymore and I'm dependable and I'm on it 100%. So you get the fun, cool Chris Cote, but you also get this new and improved version where I'm not going to come in to the commentary booth at 7 a.m. after staying up till 4 a.m. and sound like I have been gargling broken glass for the past four hours. I'm going to be on it. I'm going to know what I'm talking about. I'm going to have done my research. So it's kind of rebuilding my professional image as well. And again, that comes down to how many jobs have you gotten through happy hour or through let's go out and get some drinks and we'll talk about this project, right? I mean, that is society, right? From the first, I mean, cavemen were discussing potential gigs over some kind of alcoholized T-Rex blood. You know, yeah, it's Japan, been forever, right? In Japan, uh, when big business deals go down, they tend to do it over three days. The first two days are for heavy drinking, yes. and the third day is business because yeah. they want to see who you really are yeah. when you're wasted. Yeah, and I don't think I've... I definitely haven't lost any jobs because I, I don't drink. If anything, the jobs have doubled. But, I mean, there's been times where people don't really understand, especially in different countries. You know, in Mexico, I work for Cabo Tourism Board and some production companies down there. And it's like, let's take a shot. And I'm like, no, thanks. I don't drink. And they're all, what? wait, you don't you don't want to drink with us? I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I want to drink with you. I can't drink with you because if I drink that bad things will happen, you know? And it's funny because people, a lot of people have the perception that if you, you know, if you're a recovering alcoholic or drug addict or whatever, that if you have that one beer or that one shot, it's like your, your eyeballs are going to flip in the back of your head. You're going to go into shark mode and just think your evil is going to happen. But I think what kind of maintains my sobriety in a way is, knowing that I could totally have a beer right now and then not have any more for the rest of the day. But tomorrow or the next day, I would tell myself, oh, well, I had a beer yesterday, so I can have one today. And I had one, so I might well have two. And then down the slippery slope we go. So for me, it's just, I would always, and I would always tell myself, you know, I think six months into not drinking, I people would say, oh, wow, good job, you're not drinking you want to drink again? I would say, well, something either really good or really bad would have to happen for me to want to drink again. You know, and then I'd also say, well, if I go to Ireland or something, I'll definitely drink. And, you know, but then I go to these places, you know, I was in London pub crawling and, you know, I was drinking non-alcoholic beers, which those, those can help people a lot. Um, so there hasn't been anywhere in the world that I've been that's really tempted me super hard. 
Have you ever heard of a guy uh, named Iron Cowboy? He ran 50 Ironmans in 50 states in 50 days. Jesus. Yeah. Um, he was talking about how he pulled it off, um, this feat that no one has ever even come close to. And he said that a big part of it came down to psychologically having his actions be in accordance with his intentions. So something as small as today I'm not going to, um, you know, eat that muffin. Yeah. And not eating the muffin. Yeah. And you know, eating the muffin, it wouldn't physically make a big difference for him, but psychologically having that cohesiveness between um, his his word and his actions. Yeah. Um, it makes a huge difference. So whatever goals we set for ourselves, I think that it's important to make them reachable yeah, so that we don't feel like failures and look ourselves in the mirror thinking, I'm just not the kind of guy who's dependable. And it sucks not, not being the best you can be. I've had that experience um, with speaking opportunities where I was a little laissez-faire about it and was gonna and just decided you know I'm just gonna wing it and didn't do as well as I could have done and it's just oh it's that like pit of the stomach like you there were steps that you could have taken to do this better and you you didn't do it and you blew it yeah and it's good to feel that um that feeling like I, I think that feeling shitty is a um you know, it, it it's it can be a reminder. It can be a kind of signal that something needs to change. It's you know, it's fighting and winning small battles. It feels good, you know. Just like you said with the muffin, right? If I say wake up in the morning and go, all right, I'm gonna do 50 sit ups today, and you do it, you go, oh, okay, that, that felt good. I accomplished that. I th- I thought about it and I did it. And on the flip side of that, those small failures, you know, whether it's Okay, write five five pages a day, no matter what, and you don't do it, and you feel like a dick because you didn't do it and you wanted to do it. Um, the 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 small kind of joys that you get from those little winning battles, right? I didn't have a beer today. Good job, Kyle. You did it. You know now you can reward yourself with a muffin. Well, that's the whole thing. It's like that reward system that we do for ourselves. You know, I did great at work today, so I'm going to drink a half a bottle of wine to celebrate my incredible achievement of doing my job. You know, those those are ways that I used to kind of prop my or you know prop myself up. I guess is everything was a celebration of something, and I remember my wife one time when I I would come home from these events right, and inherently after every surf contest or skate event that would happen, right? You get caught up in the, uh, in the, the joys of whoever won the thing. Like we made it, we made it through the six day surf event. So-and-so won, let's rage. And you go out and you get wasted and you come home from this trip and you're hungover. My wife's like, why'd you get so drunk? And I go, oh, well, you know, we, finished the contest and so-and-so won they're like oh did, did you win the contest yeah <laughs> oh. i did not win the contest Ooh. oh so you're celebrating deep burn I'm celebrating doing my job i did my job so that's yeah shit so in you know in a way it's like yeah you don't 
I, I'm not saying you shouldn't celebrate yourself for doing a, a, a job well done, but I would go overboard every time celebrating celebrating the celebration. What if the whole uh, all of society shifted and we started having tea parties? Let's do it. Like no alcohol. Hey, bro, you want to get together this Friday night? Chris is having a tea party down at the beach. Well, it's crazy about how like bro, when, he's got some green tea. Yeah, when it's you coming in here from out of the country, you get loaded with your friends, right? And you are sitting there and you're talking. And look, I'm there's nothing against the tea this. Tea kettle's shaking yeah. with jittery. It's so fun. It's just oh god, it's so warm but it's soothing. Imagine how you know when you can break through the initial awkwardness and silence and weirdness of sitting down with a friend, dead sober. And you can actually start the conversation. And you know, doing this podcast, sometimes you just, you start the conversation and it rolls. And if there's beers involved inherently after, you know, a certain amount of time, things just turn into nonsense, which <laughs> yes. is fun nonsense. But you know how much deeper you can get when you're sober and when you're with a friend. And thankfully, I have a lot of friends now that um, we we can just sit there and a lot of times it is weird at first because you're sitting there, you know, what do I do with my hands? Shit, I'm not holding anything. But then you start talking and then, you know, four hours later you realize that you've actually had a really deep conversation with someone. Yeah. And trust me, I've solved all the world's problems on benders, on nighters, four in the morning. Everything's, the world is cured. But then you don't remember what you did to cure the world. And so the world's the same as how you left it at midnight. Mm. But, I wish but, I could have remembered. But the thought was there. I wish I could have <laughs> remembered what we did to solve those problems. Yeah. I think that along the lines of um, what you're saying around discomfort when you hang with someone sober, <laughs> discomfort in any sense of the word can be met with curiosity, not with I like that. Uh, distraction. Yeah. Like what if we... Like this is kind of my my grand theory of how I think that we really can make the world better is that any bad thing that happens any to in your life any um, feeling of discomfort that you have rather than like oh that fucking guy burned me I'm gonna snap right now you could be mad with like hmm what is that feeling yeah where does that come from. Whoa, let's dig into this. And that's where the real juicy shit starts to open up. Yeah. If we approach the world with a sense of curiosity. I think curiosity and empathy for sure. Because, you know, there's been recent things that I've gone through to where... And this, this it actually all... It stems from me having diarrhea, right? Trying to get from work to home in a crazy I mean driving like a, a lunatic because there could be an evacuation of bowels inside car situation going on and I remember driving cr- like crazy and uh, getting honked at and going like I, I, I'm sorry I don't care gotta get home this is an emergency and through that and I never was like super road rage guy but I would get pissed on the road like most people but I remember that situation and getting home and sitting on the toilet. And I don't want to be gross here, but at that moment thinking, God, I feel like a dick for getting mad at people driving. 
because yes, probably 80% of those people driving are just horrible drivers. They're uncaring for the rest of the, the safety of people on the road, but there's 20%. They might have diarrhea or they have a screaming kid in the car that they just want to get home or they, you know, whatever it is. So I developed a kind of road rage blocker at that minute. Now when I see people driving stupid and cell phones, whatever, that's, you know, when you're texting and driving, don't, that's idiotic. Don't do that. I do it too sometimes. I hate myself when I do it. But just the, the, the casual bad driving, fast driving, whatever it is, as long as you're not putting me or my kids at risk or driving down my street at 60 miles an hour in a 25, I look at that and I just go, look, this person might have diarrhea. Cut them some slack. Develop some empathy. And, you know, recently my marriage dissolved, right? My wife left. And I remember walking around for a week in this black state and kind of just being this shell of a human walking around and so many people going, hey, what's up? How you doing? And you just kind of look at them like, good? And walk off going, I'm not good. And so even that case, which helped me develop a broader empathy in people, seeing someone on the street, and you can tell something's wrong. And you can tell, like, just simply asking, like, hey, how you doing? It's not going to help them. But also, when you see someone walking around the street and they look pissed off and they're going, God, look at this guy, he's a dick. You just tell this dude's a dick. Think about it for a second and go, maybe this person just lost somebody or maybe this person's having a horrible day. Maybe, you know, there's so many, there's, there's so many people walking around out there going through something horrible that you know that, nothing about. Yeah. And that knee jerk reaction of like, you know, even if somebody bumps in, bumps into you, you know, shoulder checks you on the sidewalk and your immediate reaction is like, Whoa, dude, like what the fuck? Instead of thinking that maybe think, Oh man, Maybe that person's going through something really rough or, you know, simply seeing someone smiling at them, you know, saying hi on the street. Maybe this person, you know, I, I, there's probably people out there that no one's said hi to them or smiled at them in a week. And that, that simple act, you know, I think if, if we all developed a little bit more empathy, you know, it goes giving a wave. When you're surfing, give somebody a wave, right? That's going to make you feel better. And it's going to make that person feel better. You're at the skate park. There's a kid riding a scooter. Don't give him shit. <laughs> you know, cheer for him. Yeah, my mom used to run a homeless teen center in Santa Cruz. And she said one of the strangest things she learned from interacting with so many homeless teens is that they would tell her that they would go days on end without anyone looking them in the eye. Yeah, which is radical. And she said, Kyle, if someone asks you uh, for money who's homeless, you don't need to give them money, but you look them in the eye and you say, no, I'm sorry you're having such a rough time. Yeah. Hope you have a good day. Yeah. I mean, that, the little things like that go a long way. I mean, and then and it comes down to, you know, letting someone in on the freeway or, you know, there's, there's all these little things that you can do that don't take any effort, that don't take any time, that don't, you know, they don't take any money. And there's these little things that you can do that might actually go a long way for that other person. And it enhances our social fabric. I think on a meta level, what's going to destroy 
our country is not an external force. It's going to be rhetoric amongst American people. Yeah. Fuck you. You're different. You're on the other side of this issue. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to see what we have in common and where it is that we really disagree. I'm going to label you. And as a result, this whole thing is going to fall apart. Yeah. We live in a critical society and obviously through social media, it's become totally okay to just be an asshole for no reason. I'm totally for constructive criticism when worded correctly. And I've, you know, I've heard a song or read something or whatever that I've just been like, that sucks. And I'm going to tell this person that sucks. But then you think, I mean, I think if we all just took a beat, took a breath before pouring out negativity that you would realize, okay, you know, maybe this, so this person wrote a song and they recorded the song and then they went to the effort of putting the song on the internet and it's on iTunes and you might not like it, but it's not easy to do that. And it's, it takes a lot of work. It takes effort. And maybe the song just totally sucks, but you don't have to sit there and tell that person this song sucks and that's it. Right. You can say, Hey, great effort on the song. I'm wondering if maybe you added some cowbell to the song. Might that make it a little bit better or good effort, you know, keep trying. I don't know. There's For me, there's no reason to just spew negativity for negativity's sake, just to be a dick, especially if you don't attach your name to it. You know, and that's why when people come at me on message board, Twitter, whatever, you know, I just respond like, hey, thanks for being a fan. So those are some of the best fans. I've had haters with me for 10 years, which is amazing. <laughs> They're and hardcore hater fans. Hardcore haters for <laughs> decades, and they've followed me through my career, ups and downs. They've been there since day one, oh, and I think that's great. That is so funny. I mean, ten ye- like 10 years you've been writing the same stuff. Like, that's admirable, and I appreciate that. And I don't, I mean, to me, the worst thing is to be ignored. And I always have said, you know, it's when they stop talking is when you have the problem. Because if they're hating, and Cat Williams said it too, if you ain't got 10 haters by summer, you ain't doing it right. Eminem, I love being hated. It lets me know that I made it. Yes. If you ain't hated, you ain't made it. Yeah, I think that a good uh, totem to shoot for is... If you're going to say it on a message board, say it in the same tone that you would say it to the person if you saw them walking down the street. Yeah. And if you want to, if you have constructive criticism, or even if you fucking hate the person, say it in the same tone that you would say it to them walking down the street. Because if if you don't, then you aren't living in accordance with your values of like truly hating the person. Like it's kind of a wormy thing to do. You're living this double life behind a message board. It's like, yeah, I would way rather have someone walk up to me on the street and be like, your podcast sucks. It fucking sucks. All caps. All right. All caps. Why? Yeah. I I just saw this, uh, something on Instagram. It was this kid, teenager. Obviously he looked like a shitty kid and I would say that to him in in front of his face, but he had a shirt that said, LeBron is a bitch, right? And can you imagine if that kid 
wearing the LeBron is a bitch shirt. I actually got to meet LeBron. He would be starstruck and he would go, oh my God. I remember at Transworld, there was this one dude for, I mean, a year straight writing the worst shit ever about me on our message boards. We were like one of the first message boards to really accept and cultivate this voracious, voracious, yeah, just awful messages, seething bitterness. No, yeah, no, you know, monetary or no, uh, no watching of the of the uh, message boards. We would just let them fly, right? Yes. This one dude for for years, all capital letters. Yeah, oh, just the worst. I mean, personal attacks, the whole Mm -hmm. deal. And finally, I'm like, you know what? Track the dude down through through the internet. Tracked him down and turned out he owned and operated a flower shop. And I called him on the phone. He's like, hello? I go, hey, what's up? This is Chris from Transworld. How's it going? And the dude was silent. He goes, hey. I go, what's your problem? Do you have a problem with me personally? Because it really seems like you're angry. Did I do something to you? I just want to, you know, get to the bottom of this. And he's like, I, I'm a huge fan I didn't think I was, you know, hurting you or the whole thing. And I go, dude, honestly, why don't you just, you know, you're a fan and you want attention. Just ask for it. You know, you don't have to. And his messages were evil. And he was so freaked out when I called him. And and flower shop. Yeah. And he's going, you're not going to tell anybody who, who I am. Right. And I go, no, I wouldn't do that. You know, but I just want you to know that I'm a nice person. And I, you know, even if you, and, and the funny thing was, he was the biggest Transworld Surf fan ever. A huge Chris Cote fan, but his way of, and I think again, this is a huge percentage of haters, is they're fans and they just want attention. I mean, can you imagine Kelly Slater's fan base? Over half of them are just throwing, hurling insults and trying to goad him into his reaction. And, you know, however many, you know, you, you could sit there and throw messages at Kelly Slater like, you're the worst. I hate you. Da, da, da. And the one time he'll react, that person's going to be so happy. And unfortunately, it's probably going to make them just reply more and more with negativity because that's how we got to him. You know, and, and that's the, the crazy thing about our uh, kind of social media society is and it happens to me on Instagram all the time. Somebody writes the lamest comment. I direct message them like what's up they go hey what's up man big fan so then then why are you saying i'm fat or why (laughs) why are you saying this or that you know it's like because have you seen these abs since i've gotten sober come Come at at me me with something nice and i'll reply with something nice yeah yeah i um i have a lot of empathy for people who have to deal with that who are that famous and just deal with this parade of hatred on a daily basis because you really have to develop this kind of Zen philosophy around it. Yeah. Like, Hmm, what do these people have to teach me? Or otherwise I think that it would be very easy to barricade yourself and say humans suck. You can't block everybody. Right. Yeah. But I, I see that's why famous people, are weird I become weird yeah. yeah it's because they have to deal with this tsunami coming at them at any point uh during the day when i mean imagine if every time you opened instagram there were ten thousand messages of people saying the most biting personal 
venomous shit. Yeah. Or I want this. Yeah. I need this from you. Can you do this for me? And I think there's a certain, there's certain famous people that, um, got into it knowing full well that they were doing it for fame, you know, whether it's somebody in a band or an actor or something like that. They, they know that fame is the end result, but I think for, you know, some athletes, uh, or, you know, these days, I guess social media, famous people, they didn't necessarily sign up for it. You know, I think in, in Kelly Slater's case and other famous surfer John John, for example, it's like they just surfed really well. They didn't necessarily, they did definitely did not surf to be famous, but that came at them through what they did. And when you're the world's best at something, you know, you're going to be famous for that. And so I think, you know, whereas people in bands, a lot of times they have, have kind of pre-trained themselves for the fame. And it definitely gets the bet, the best of most of them. But I think in the case of athletes, a lot of times it's that fame was a secondary byproduct of them just being so good at something. So when they focused a thousand percent at becoming the best at one thing, fame followed them. And so they had to learn how to deal with that after the fact. And some surfers, skaters, whatever, they're really good at being famous. You know, I think Kelly, John, John, these guys, they've done an incredible job of balancing the constant need for people, you know, to asking for things, do this for me, do that. I need this. Um, you know, Kelly is so generous with his time and with, you know, what he does for people. And yeah, he's a weirdo, right? I mean, I'm, we're all weirdos and, and he's one of them, but he's one of the most giving, you know, nicest weirdos there are like this, the, the guy does things out of nowhere for people. You know, I've witnessed it with this local girl here who had this gnarly brain tumor. Kelly kind of just came out of nowhere, donated a day at his wave pool, donated a board, met with her. He didn't have to do that, you know, and I feel like any, you know, when if people talk shit, you can always point to these certain things like, well, you don't like him for no reason. Maybe he didn't respond to your weird message on Instagram, but he's out here putting his money where his mouth is donating time, donating monetary, you know, things and experiences to people he doesn't know, you know, and I, and I bet he wishes he could do more, you know, and that's just, I don't know. I, I really admire that because even if somebody's weird to me, doesn't mean that, you know, they're, they're out there doing incredible good things for the world. Um, you know, and I think it's really easy for people to judge like, Oh, he's rich. You're not giving, you know, money to save the rhinos. Well, yeah, we behind a, the scenes. Doing... We have a weird thing with money uh, in our culture, like rich people. Like that's a, it is a label. Uh, like I was talking about um, earlier with like, we label like, like bleeding heart liberal, you know, like the Trump at Trump supporter, you know, like people who are famous, who have a ton of money. Um, can be labeled and judged for having made a bunch of money. And it's this like weird thing where we think people who have money don't have problems. Mm-hmm. Like money can definitely help. S- some of your problems go I away. I would be that a is, great rich person, yeah. by the way. 
Um, but it, but uh, I totally threw you off right there. No, yeah, well, I, yeah, that, we'd be I, great I think, if we were rich. We would. Be we great. wouldn't be like those other rich people. Well, I think that it's about it's. The distinction is people who are famous, people who have some sort of uh, voice, when they are allowing that energy to move through them, as Kelly does, okay, I have this this platform, I have this voice, I'm I'm not going to get hung up on this past thing that I did and let my identity be consumed by this past event that's receding away from me. I'm going to use all this energy and move it out into the world, and that's the only way I've ever seen anyone who's famous stay sane. Yeah. You have to, I guess, be, you know, you can't just hold up in your mansion. You got to be out there. You've got to, you know, I think you have to, for better or for worse, you have to let your truth out. And, you know, that's why I I always said I, I would be a great rich person because I don't really care about money. As long as I have enough to pay the bills, I mean, I could I could work ten times harder and I could do things to make more money. But I kind of like being able to go surf at eleven o'clock on a Tuesday when I want to. You know, I want to skate in the morning sometimes for two hours, and you know, I feel like that freedom of just being able to kind of you know not be totally. Oh, you know, not be owned by the pursuit of wealth it feels good. And, you know, I, tr- trust me, like I've done every awful job there is on the planet from digging ditches. I've done every, I've done it all. So I know what it's like to work hard. And, you know, I've, I feel like life is, goes so fast that, you know, there's going to be a time when I'm going to look back and be thinking, Oh, you know what? I'm glad I surfed as much as I possibly could because I'm 90 and I can't service that much anymore, but I really did fit it all in. Yeah, you're not going to look back and be like, man, I wish I, wish I would have had more screen time, you know? Yes. Yeah, good for you, man. I think that um, one theme I've noticed about you is that throughout everything that you've done, you've uh, prioritized your values. You've prioritized surfing, skating, you know what you like to do, and you've figured out ways to be able to keep those activities that bring you joy close to you. And I want to inspire people to do those things. You know, I was inspired to make music by bands like, you know, Sonic Youth, Fugazi, these bands that were, you know, basically when a lot of people would listen to early Sonic Youth, they would think, this is not music. Uh, I don't like this. You know, what are these people doing? But then when you, you know, you think about it, it's like, that's their art, right? And so when I make a song or produce music or whatever or do a painting, it's like, that's my art and I'm not doing it for other people. I'm doing it as an expression of what I feel or, you know, it makes me feel better to do these things. And, you know, again, putting a video of myself skating on Instagram. Look, I'm not Eric Costin. Obviously, I'm mediocre at best, but... If much it, better looking than yes, it, I mean, if it gets one person off their ass to go skate, then I've done my job, you know. And, and again, that that helps me when I put that out there. It's not to impress other people; it's to get it out, you know, to myself to get it out there. And it's kind of again a dare to myself, which is a huge theme in my life is a dare to myself. Whenever I've played solo shows 
Look, I'm not trained. I shouldn't be out there with the guitar in front of people, but I dared myself to do it. And I called the Casbah in San Diego. I called the belly up and go, hey, uh, I'm a professional musician. I'd like to open this show for so-and-so. And they're like, um, okay. And so I have the date. It's on my calendar. And I go, oh, shit. Okay, now I got to make some songs, at least be presentable. And then it comes, the, the date comes and I go, here's your dare. And then you do it and you go, wow, okay, I did it. That wasn't too painful. Let's do that again. You know, and, and I, I, you've probably done that with, with your own stuff. Like, Kyle, I dare you to surf Mavericks. You can do it. And then you did it. And you're here. You're alive. You know, that's the whole thing. It's like if you don't dare yourself to do anything, if you don't dare yourselves to get out of your own personal boundaries, you know, how are you going to uh, accomplish anything? Or how are you going to even you know, do more for yourself than you thought was, was possible in the first place. So I would say if, you know, anybody listening, dare yourself to do something and then do it. And even if you fail miserably, most of the time, it's not as bad as you thought it would be. Like, like surfing Mavericks? Like, yeah, like falling, like falling on a big wave at Mavericks. I remember falling on the first, like, I remember I was paddling for a wave. It was the first session. It was decent size yeah, I'm just hearing this story and I was paddling for the wave and it was like a last minute decision I decided I wasn't gonna go on it so I <laughs> I sat up on my board and pulled back but I had passed too, the po- I had passed the point of no return and all of a sudden I felt myself starting to get sucked over the falls sitting on my surfboard I'm like, oh no! And then we'll, you know, suck to the bottom. And then you didn't die. And I, okay, I'm up. I'm up. That white water all around me. There was another wave coming. Down. I'm up. Okay. Got back on my board. Paddled in the channel. Okay. I'm. I'm still here. Right. I'm, I'm good. How, how are you doing? You good? Okay. We're good. Now get back out there. Let's get back out there. And I piled back out and got a few more waves. And that experience was like, it was so, I, I, I don't want to sound melodramatic by saying it was a rite of passage, but moving through what I had perceived to be a worst case scenario. Oh yeah. Um, and still coming out the other end and being okay um, was a a truly fortifying experience that I never could have gotten if I didn't uh, if I if I had never fallen well yeah I mean a failure even on a that's a a large-scale failure that you bounced back from and learned from and then advanced from right and even a small-scale failure throughout the day I'm trying to write something I wrote this page and it sucked. Failure. All right. I got to bounce back from that. And now I got to write two pages. So you can learn from these small failures, right? Even when you're surfing somewhere new, I mean, even if it's not Mavericks like that, you you eat shit at a new reef break or whatever that you've surfed. You eat shit. You come up. You're like, okay, well, now I'm listened up. Now I'm ready to do it. You slam at the skate park. You didn't break your arm. You slammed. You got it over with. All right, now we can... Now we can let the session begin. Those small scale to large scale slams or wipeouts, if you will, those are the things that are going to kind of help you reset and restart 
And for you, I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to surf Mavericks as good as you do now, or you probably maybe wouldn't even have never surfed it again had you not experienced that initial, you know, slam, that initial failure that kind of opened your eyes to the fact that, oh, okay, I can do this. A lot of people would have taken a wipeout like that, came into the boat and said, oh, well, I tried. That's it. I'm done. You know, and I think that the fact that you kind of came back from that, went back out there, and I've seen the photos of you on big ass waves at Mavericks. And, you know, I think you can kind of take from that, you can take that huge scale of an accomplishment, break it down to a macro level. And, you know, even if it's trying to cook a new meal or, I mean, there's little things that you're going to fail at first try. But if you keep trying, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to even say these small failures, if you can just try to accomplish something, get past that small failure, now you know how to do it. I tried to cook a steak. It was raw in the middle. On Maybe I got a coli, but I'm going to try again. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and second time, well, that was pretty good. I can cook steak now. Yeah. It is funny how many life lessons when we talk about them come off as pedestrian. Like, be nice to other people. Yeah. You know? move through failure and learn from it. But I think a lot of times the messenger is as important as the message and we don't get the learnings just one time and then live and then live with it. It's just like we, we fail, we learn, we forget, we fail, we learn, we forget. And uh, hopefully we come out the other end with a smile on our face. That's right. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. That was a great I'm, conversation. Congratulations on your podcast, which... I remember when you first started this podcast, um, I wished the best for you and I've gotten the best for you. You're killing it. Thank you, sir. This is like a real thing. Yeah. This is a real thing. <laughs> Thanks, people man. are listening. Yeah. Hi, people. Surpri- Kyle's killing it. Surprisingly. Yeah, man. Well, um, I do also... Um, I, pre- I always appreciated you giving me the time of day when I was uh, a Grom. I remember being you know, 15, 16 years old, aspiring C-grade pro surfer. And, B-grade, um, come on, you were pretty good. And I, I remember going into Transworld and uh, you sitting down with me and and saying, yeah, what kind of stories do you have? Wow, this is really interesting. Like, wow, that banking story that you're doing sounds fascinating. And um, you were one of the few people down here who was busy and at the top, you know, you had shit to do and you did give me that time so that... Um, it really mattered to me. And now I'm asking for your time. <laughs> and you gave it to me. Thank you. Right on, Chris. More to come. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called Have, Have Not by the band Cut You Up. This is Chris Cote's band. Check them out on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your music. Also, don't forget to check out Chris's podcast, Monday Mass. And once again, this is an ad-free podcast, and I so, so, so appreciate all of you who go to Patreon and donate. You can go to my website, kyle.surf, and donate. You can click the description below this podcast and donate. It is so simple, and... I just really appreciate it. If you can't donate, don't stress on it, but please give this podcast a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find it and it makes a big difference. With that, I've got some 
banger episodes coming out for you in the days ahead. I sat down with astrophysicist Bruce Damer. I sat down with Wallace J. Nichols, the author of Blue Mind. I have one coming up that I'm going to record with Chris Ryan and Jim Fadiman. A three-way podcast coming at you. I'm really excited for that one. Uh, Damian Hobgood's coming out soon. Lots of good ones. Lots of good ones. So thank you again for listening. And with that, hope you enjoy this song by Cut You Up called Have, Have Not.